Welcome to Do We Know Things, a podcast where we examine things we think we know about sex. Content warning. This podcast will include discussions of sexual desire and testosterone. everyone. I'm Dr. Lisa Don Hamilton, professor of psychology and sex educator. Today on Do We Know Things, does testosterone make you horny? Do I make you horny, baby? Yeah, do I? Testosterone is such a mythical hormone. We ascribe to it virtually everything that has to do with masculinity. It makes men strong, hairy, and virile. But what if I told you that everybody has testosterone coursing through their bloodstream? It's true. Yes, it's linked with physical markers of masculinity like low body fat and higher muscle mass on average, but what about the sexual and psychological stuff? Does testosterone make us horny? The answer is pretty complicated, and on this episode, I'll walk you through what we actually know about testosterone and sexual desire. That's coming up on Do We Know Things. But first... In episode four, I talked about the use of SSRIs to treat rapid ejaculation, which is the new name for the problem formerly known as premature ejaculation. SSRIs are a type of antidepressant. And after the episode aired, one listener emailed a question. And that listener actually is Matt, my script wizard. And so to ask that question, I have brought Matt onto the podcast today. Welcome, Matt. Hello, Lisa Dawn. Uh, longtime listener, first time emailer to the podcast. <laughs> You are probably the original listener since you've been reading the scripts and listening to drafts forever. That's true. That's true. (laughs) So here's my question. Uh, You and you kind of hint about it in the podcast, but you say that um, SSRIs have an effect on people uh, with premature ejaculation that are that are quick to come. Uh, Are they actually prescribed to people who are not um, diagnosed with anxiety or depression or just have this have this problem with their their sexual function? That's a great question. And the answer is yes. So SSRIs are now seen as a primary treatment for people with premature ejaculation or rapid ejaculation, uh, regardless of whether they have issues with anxiety and depression. And to me, that's a a pretty major thing to, to do to take a drug that you have to take every single day that alters your brain chemistry to treat something like premature ejaculation. I'm asking for a friend, but uh, (laughs) where can I get more information? (laughs) Um, Well, one of the things about premature ejaculation that I think is important to note is that we make it out, especially in heterosexual relationships, we make it out to be such a big deal, but it actually doesn't have to be that big of a deal. I think that's sort of the theme of a lot of the things I talk about on this podcast. One great reference for working with premature ejaculation is a book by Ian Kerner. He's a therapist and someone who has experienced premature ejaculation through most of his life. And the book is called She Comes First. And the subtitle is The Thinking Man's Guide to Pleasuring a Woman. All right. I may check it out. (laughs) And kind of Kerner's whole point is that to be an excellent lover, you don't need to be able to have PVI for hours on end. What really matters is pleasuring your partner. And that can be done very easily through all sorts of other things like oral sex, using your hands, using toys. And the book goes through all sorts of tips and to, or sorry, and the book goes through all sorts of tips to be an excellent lover for men who have sex with women. 
And basically the gist is, if she comes lots before penetration even happens, then rapid ejaculation doesn't really matter. Makes sense. Thanks, Lisa Dawn. Thanks, Matt, for coming on the show. I also got some peer review feedback about the SSRI episode from depression and sex expert Dr. Tierney Lorenz. Dr. Lorenz is an assistant professor of psychology at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. She is such an expert on this topic that her Twitter handle is at DepressedSex. Dr. Lorenz explained in more detail about how SSRIs work beyond the level of reuptake. She noted that while serotonin reuptake can happen right away, it's often weeks before the therapeutic effects happen. This is because there are many more changes in the brain that happen as a result of taking those drugs. You can hear more about the neuroscience details by going to episode four on the website doweknowthings.com, where you can hear the full recording of what Dr. Lorenz said. On today's podcast, I'll include two key reasons from Dr. Lorenz about why it's important we understand the full effects of SSRIs. Here's Dr. Lorenz. So firstly, it's important to know that if you're taking these medications, it takes a while for these medications to work. And in order for them to work properly, you have to be consistent in your dosing, which means that you have to take them really consistently. And unfortunately, the worst arousal and orgasm side effects happen within the first week or two of starting an SSRI, long before they feel like they're working for your mood. You have to push through that awkward phase to really know what your final result is going to be. Um, Like Lindsay said in the last podcast, the effect on your mood might cancel out the negative effects on your sexual function. And research consistently shows that side effects, either sexual side effects or other kinds of side effects, any side effects is going to be worse for people who are inconsistent with their medication um, as their body's constantly trying to readjust. So one of the very best things that people can do to improve their sexual side effects is to take the medication as consistently as possible as prescribed. And the second reason why it's really important to understand how these medications work is to understand why people sometimes have side effects that last longer than they were taking these medications. So the fact that the real therapeutic effect of SSRI seems to be downstream of their main chemical action on serotonin helps to explain why some folks continue to have sexual side effects even after they go off their medication, and in some case, for a very long time afterwards. Um, In simple terms, because these meds are changing the way that the brain works, which is why you can go off them eventually and still have some benefits, that also means that they can cause long-lasting changes that continue to impact your sexual function long after they wash out of your system. Now, the vast majority of folks who take these meds don't have lasting effects severe enough to um, qualify for a diagnosis of what we would call post-SSRI discontinuation disorder. But many people say that it does take them months or even a year for their sexual function to come completely back to normal, even after they take the meds. Um, Incidentally, my lab just put out a paper looking at women who took SSRIs when they were teenagers, and now, as adults, they say that they have lower solitary sexual desire than women who had the same kinds of mental health problems as kids, but they didn't take medication for it. So our research on that area is still really early on, but I think it's an important question that we need better data on. What are the long-term effects of these medications so that patients and um, parents can make more informed decisions? Thanks so much to Dr. Tierney Lorenz for the feedback and extra info about SSRIs and sexual function. Remember, if you have feedback about an episode, you can always send it to me by email at doweknowthings at gmail.com. 
And now, on with today's show. To begin, let's have a crash course in testosterone. Testosterone is an androgen. The word androgen means substance that promotes maleness. But everyone has testosterone in their bodies. Androgen is a category of hormones classified as sex steroids. Often when we talk about the word steroids, people immediately think of anabolic steroids that people take to increase muscle mass. But steroid just means a molecule that has a specific core structure. And there are tons of these. Steroid hormones are a category of steroids that are derived from cholesterol. And sex steroids are a subcategory of steroid hormones. Are you with me? All right. So the sex steroid hormones include estrogens, progestogens, and androgens. Sex steroids can be thought of as hormones that are released from the gonads, so the testes and the ovaries. But they are also synthesized and released from other places in the body. What you need to know is that testes produce the most testosterone, so people with testes have the highest levels of the naturally occurring hormone. There are two things to know about hormones in general. And these are some of the first things I remember being taught in my first hormones and behavior class. This class was taught by Neil Watson. I wanted to give a shout out to him. He's a psychology professor at Simon Fraser University. Keep in mind that this was 17 years ago that I took this class. So this is just my memory of what I learned and what stuck out most to me. The first thing to know is that hormones only increase the likelihood of certain behaviors occurring. Even giving someone a direct injection of testosterone isn't going to make them feel certain things or make them engage in certain behaviors. It just makes those related behaviors more likely. The second thing to know is that there's a reciprocal relationship between biology and behavior. So what this means is that your behavior and your social interactions with others will change your hormone levels, just like your hormone levels can change your behavior and interactions with others. When most people think about hormones, I think they forget this part of the equation. We talk about testosterone as making something happen. Um, but testosterone is linked with behaviors related to competition, sex, and status in a reciprocal way. So, for example, having sex can increase your testosterone, or winning a competition can increase your testosterone. It works both ways. Defining sexual desire is much harder because it doesn't have a clear chemical structure that you can just hone in on. If you've experienced sexual desire, you probably know exactly what it feels like for you. It's harder to pin down when we're trying to define it for research purposes. Different fields of study define it differently. Very broadly, you can think of it as a motivated state or a drive towards something sexual. But as researchers such as Marta Miana and Sari Van Anders have asked, desire for what exactly? It really depends on the person and the situation. It could be desire for physical release through orgasm, or desire for affection, or desire for physical contact with another human. It could even just be fantasies about sexual things that don't necessarily need any behaviors to come from them. In terms of psychology research, probably the most common measure of sexual desire is the sexual desire inventory. This questionnaire asks about people's desire for both solitary sexual activity, what we often call masturbation, and partnered sexual activity. It asks about how often people want to engage in solo or partnered sexual activity, how often they think about sex, and how strong their desire is for sex in given scenarios. Researchers then add up the answers to the questions to get a measure of sexual desire. And sometimes researchers split it up into solitary desire versus partnered desire. Although many of you know what it means to be horny or what that word means, I thought I should clarify that as well. Often in English, we informally call sexual desire horniness. 
Most people don't walk around saying, I am currently experiencing sexual desire. They say, I'm horny. Although as an aside, I actually found out when giving a talk in the Netherlands uh, that the word horny translates to a Dutch word that is very not appropriate for public use. Okay, so now I've gotten to the part we've all been waiting for. What is the relationship between testosterone and sexual desire? Does testosterone make you horny? The first area of research that can help answer this question is correlational studies of naturally occurring testosterone levels and self-reported sexual desire. These studies involve researchers measuring participants' testosterone either in blood or saliva, and then having those participants answer questions about their sexual desire. For cisgender women, the evidence about the link between testosterone and desire is all over the place. Some studies show high testosterone is related to higher desire, some studies show no relationship between the two, and some even find that high testosterone is related to less desire, depending on certain conditions. Part of the issue in doing correlational research is that usually there are other factors that contribute to that relationship. We call these in psychology third variables. So if you're just measuring testosterone and desire, you're not measuring the other things that might contribute to both changes in desire and changes in testosterone. The context really matters when we're talking about sex and hormones. And as the research advances, we can look at these other factors and different contexts in more detail. So for example, people's stress levels can change the relationship between testosterone and sexual desire. And also what people are actually desiring. So are they desiring orgasms? Are they desiring closeness with a partner? Those things can also determine whether testosterone is linked to desire. Overall, I would say that the research points to a small relationship between testosterone and desire for women, but it depends on the context. For young, healthy, cisgender men, most research does not find a relationship between testosterone and desire. If the person has testosterone levels that are in the normal range for a human male, having higher or lower than average testosterone doesn't really affect desire. This can vary when researchers look at other factors like stress, but in general, for young, healthy men, there's just not a link. People with ovaries have lower levels of testosterone on average compared to people with testes. As such, they're more sensitive to fluctuations in testosterone. This means that changes in testosterone have potentially more of an effect for people with ovaries. An analogy that can illustrate this phenomenon might be to think about adding red food coloring to a glass of fruit punch, Think of that as people with testes and lots of testosterone versus a glass of water. So people without testes and lower testosterone. If you add red food coloring to red fruit punch, you won't notice any change in color. But if you add it to a glass of water, the change is more apparent. However, we do know that for people not taking any external hormones, levels of testosterone and other androgens decrease as we get older. Levels of sexual desire also decrease as we get older. In cisgender men in particular, there is a link between aging, lower testosterone, and lower sexual desire. However, there are a lot of other things happening to our bodies as we age as well. It's hard to know what other variables contribute to that link. I also want to note that there are other androgenic hormones that affect sexual desire. Two of them are DHEA, that seems to be particularly relevant for cisgender women's sexual desire, and DHT, that is linked to men's sexual desire. It's likely that all of these androgenic hormones have some effects on sexual desire. Another critical component of this research that often gets ignored by both researchers and by the general public is the effect of sexual desire on testosterone. 
As I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, hormones and behavior have a reciprocal relationship. So having sex can increase testosterone, and even thinking about sex can increase testosterone. So it's important to keep that in mind. Another line of research looks at what happens to sexual desire when we mess with testosterone. One of the best sources of evidence for the link between testosterone and desire is prostate cancer patients. One treatment for prostate cancer is androgen deprivation therapy, or ADT. ADT involves taking drugs that block testosterone because testosterone promotes prostate cancer. Patients who take these drugs report drastic decreases in sexual desire. From the research with prostate cancer patients, it's apparent that having some testosterone is an important contributor to sexual desire in men. When you take away all of their testosterone, their desire goes down quite a lot. However, these men still experience desire for sex, some more than others, but most of them report a decrease. Of course, when we're talking about cancer patients, there's a lot of stuff going on in their lives since they have a life-threatening disease. There's also a loss of erections as a result of ADT or other prostate cancer treatments. All of the changes that go along with having cancer, including other treatment effects, can also affect desire. One interesting thing to note that estrogen, another sex steroid, is a way to potentially restore some desire in people who can't have testosterone in their bodies. I'll talk more about that in a future episode. Another area of research that speaks to the links between testosterone and sexual desire is research with trans people who take testosterone. One of the first times I read about a trans person taking testosterone was back in 2004 when I was reading Patrick Khalifa's book, Sex Changes. I read this book at a time when I was first starting to study testosterone, so I knew something about it, but not much. In one of the chapters, Khalifa says something along the lines of, After I started taking testosterone, so much changed. I suddenly liked sports. Every time I threw a ball of paper in the trash, it went imperfectly. I suddenly understood the lyrics of heavy metal music. I remember reading this and being like, whoa, I can't believe testosterone has such a huge effect. In the next paragraph, Khalifa says he was just kidding about those things, and then I was embarrassed for being so gullible. Throughout the book, though, Khalifa does talk about his experiences with increased libido when he started taking testosterone. And research does show that increased libido is something that trans people taking testosterone do report. Of course, not everyone will have that experience, since hormones only increase the likelihood of things, but it is commonly reported. So that's another piece of evidence linking increased testosterone with increased desire, at least to some degree. Because of the strongly assumed association between testosterone and desire, drug companies have also sought to capitalize on this for people experiencing low levels of desire. There are a number of drug companies that have developed testosterone patches, gels, and injections designed to treat low sexual desire. For cisgender women in North America, testosterone treatment for low sexual desire is not officially approved, but it does get prescribed off-label. Testosterone patches are approved for postmenopausal women in Europe. It wasn't approved in the U.S. because of concerns over health risks. Because of the clinical trials that had to be done to see if we could use testosterone as a treatment for low sexual desire, we do have research on this. And for postmenopausal women, it does seem like testosterone supplementation can increase sexual desire. Of course, taking testosterone can also come with other side effects, such as increased body hair. For cisgender men, testosterone supplementation doesn't really have an effect if their testosterone levels are already in that normal range. Uh, but for men with abnormally low levels of testosterone, there is some evidence that taking testosterone, either through patch, pill, or injection, can increase sexual desire. An important caveat is that one of the things that often gets overlooked in studies where testosterone is administered to people is its widespread effects. 
Testosterone is a social hormone, and it doesn't just affect our sexuality. Taking testosterone can change people's perceptions of others, can alter their relationships, their impulsivity, and other aspects of their lives. So whether you're adding testosterone or taking it away, it can change a lot of things in your life. While testosterone is heavily mythologized as the masculinity hormone, and we often link masculinity with unbridled sexual desire, the reality is much more complicated. Testosterone does seem to be pretty important for cisgender men to experience sexual desire, but as long as it's in the normal range, more testosterone doesn't seem to mean more horniness. For men outside the normal range, taking testosterone as a medication does seem to increase their self-reported desire. As usual in science, we have less knowledge about women's biology because men are often seen as the standard. Women and non-human female animals were often left out of research because the hormone changes from the estrus and menstrual cycles were deemed too complicated or too messy to include in research. Estradiol, which is a form of estrogen, also plays a role in female desire, but there's not much research on this in humans. There is more in non-human animals. Making things even more tricky is that testosterone can actually be converted to estradiol in the brain, so it's harder to tease apart what hormone is doing what in humans. For women, testosterone does seem to be linked to desire, and the fluctuations seem to have more effects on them than men. Men are saturated in testosterone, so a bit more or a bit less doesn't change much for them, but for people with lower testosterone, it can have a dramatic effect. Also, I want to again reiterate that there is a reciprocal relationship between hormones and behavior. Your behavior and your interactions with others also change your hormones. This episode was all about how testosterone affects sexual desire. The fact is, testosterone does matter for sexual desire, at least a little. Although I really only talked about hormones in this episode, what's important to keep in mind about humans is that we have these powerful brains and complex social systems that all work together to make things much more complex than just testosterone equals desire. Sexual desire comes from a variety of sources and has a ton of influences. How you are feeling on any given day can affect your desire. The social messages about what kinds of desire are acceptable can affect your desire. The messages about what kinds of people are desirable can affect your desire. Your access to privacy for solo or partnered sex can affect your desire. Being mauled by children all day can affect your desire. How much sleep you got yesterday can affect your desire. You get the point. What I'm trying to get at here is that while testosterone has some influence on desire, and desire has some influence on testosterone, there's a lot more to sexual desire than just a hormone. That's all for this week's episode. If you have any feedback or peer review of this episode, I'm always excited to hear from you. You can email me at doweknowthings at gmail.com. On the next episode of Do We Know Things, I will continue talking about desire and tackle the age-old question of who desires sex more. Cultural stereotypes tell us that men want sex more than women, but is that true? I'll delve into the research on the topic and discuss the controversies and complexities of answering this question next time on Do We Know Things. You can find a script for this episode with references and extra info on our website at doweknowthings.com. Thanks to Dr. Tierney Lorenz for her comments on SSRIs and sex. All music and sounds in this episode are by Jeremy Dahl. Check him out at paleblue.ca. Script assistance by Matt Tunnicliffe, and thanks also to Matt for his guest appearance on this episode. I'm Lisa Don Hamilton. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Do We Know Things, and you can email me at doweknowthings at gmail.com. 
Of course, I would love it if you could subscribe and rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time on Do We Know Things.